How do you do? Hello. Welcome to the second episode of The Private Citizen for Wednesday, the 12th of February, 2020. My name is Fabian Scherschel, but uh, you may call me Fab because that's that'll be easier. And I'm happy to uh, have you here again. Today we're going to talk about electronic voting and the threat it represents to democracy. I am once again coming to you from the lovely city of Hamburg in Germany, um, where I'm recording this a little bit ahead of time for some scheduling reasons. I'm recording this on the Sunday evening, I'm nestled at home with a nice glass of red wine. And in the middle of a, of a storm, quite a quite a heavy storm that this has started all day, and it's, it's brewing outside, and it's nice and windy, and it's actually very cozy. So um, <laughs> let's let's get to it, to it, shall we? I'm I'm happy that you that you're here again. And um, at first, I should address. You might be wondering, this is a privacy show. Why is he going to talk about electronic voting? And um, it's just. A topic that's very important, I think, and this is more the uh, the citizen part of the private citizen because once in a while, I also on this show, when I talk about things that are maybe not, um, well, you know, they they you know they 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 have to do with privacy, but they're not you know inherently privacy topic, and I think you know voting is is one of those things, and there's definitely privacy concerns here. Um, but generally it's just such an important thing for, for us and for our society. And I think we, uh, we definitely have to discuss this. And, um, so that's, that's what I, what I want to do today. Um, it has to do definitely with the fact that this is a current topic at the moment. Um, because, um, you know, let's, we might as well just let, let's get straight into it. Um, we, we live in a time currently where, especially, you know, if you're looking, looking at the US, uh, politics, uh, are very heated. It's a very heated climate. It's a very partisan climate. And of course, uh, the US have a big uh, election coming up this year, uh, in 2020, uh, the presidential election, of course. And, uh, yeah. And that's why it's an important topic. It's kind of, um, you know, in 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 Germany, uh, our our next next election is is a year off still, um, as planned. But uh, I mean, the, the same thing will will happen. You know, the same discussions will be had here, um, in twenty twenty one, and. Uh, wherever you are in the world, you'll have, you know, you'll, you'll have this, the same things going on. Um, I mean, the U S is just at the forefront of these things and, and we'll have to, we'll have to deal with all that. So, you know, in our, in our country. So I thought it's important to talk about this and, um, so what's, what's actually going on? I mean, we had, we just had the impeachment, um, trial of Donald Trump where he was acquitted and as part of that, um, the whole narrative was that Trump tried to solicit um, interference in the elections, and um, you know this was this was based on uh, the, uh, the the phone call he had with the Ukrainian uh, head of state. Where I don't want to get into this whole topic too deeply, but basically, you know, thing that's alleged. Um, is that he tried to um, have one of his political opponents, Joe Biden, um, discredited. You know, his son, Hunter Biden, uh, had a job in Ukraine, and there was this whole thing about the theory about corruption there, and he wanted the Ukrainians uh, to investigate that. And no matter if you think that that was actually misuse of power or whatever it was, um, the theory goes that you know, he tried to discredit Joe Biden with that and therefore indirectly um, tried to influence the election. And from that, the uh, Democrats in the U.S. have built this 
um, narrative that basically says that Donald Trump will stop of nothing, especially now that he's been acquitted in the impeachment trial, um, of influence the elections again, that he'll basically tell the Russians, well, you can hack the elections and, um, of course, the whole world will will look on on this presidential election as 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 it did in in 2016, and whatever happens there will be very important for democracy of all around the world. Now, as I said, I don't want to want to get into that that discussion. Uh, you know, if it was if it was right to try to impeach Donald Trump, if if it was right to acquit him. Um, I don't want to get into this discussion here, but if you look at just the political climate and the, um, the way this impeachment went down, then there is a certain thing you can't help noticing. There is a, a distrust for democracy and for the, for the voting system in the US right now, I think. And it, it's clear in, in, in many uh, articles in the press, but it was, I think, made most clear by um, the Democratic um, leader, lead manager of the impeachment, so basically impeachment uh, leader. Um, so on the, his in his opening speech to the to the to the end of the impeachment, he said something very momentous. I think. Um, he basically cast doubt on on the next election. He he advanced the theory that Donald Trump will stop at nothing um, to have somebody interfere in this election, and therefore we can't trust the outcome of that election. Um, and I have I have a little uh, I clipped a bit of his speech here. So what he, what he actually said was this: As we will discuss, impeachment exists for cases in which the conduct of the president rises beyond mere policies, disputes to be decided otherwise and without urgency at the ballot box. Instead, we are here today to consider a much more grave matter, and that is an attempt to use the powers of the presidency to cheat in an election. For precisely this reason, the president's misconduct cannot be decided at the ballot box, for we cannot be assured that the vote will be fairly won. So what he says here, what you have here is an elected official of a democratic government openly saying that you cannot be sure of the outcome of the next election. And this is why in, the, in this case, okay, you know, his, his point was this is why we have to impeach Donald Trump um, because we can't have it come down to the next vote. Now, the impeachment uh, trial failed. Uh, which is beside the point. That's not what I want to talk about. What I want to talk about here is an elected official in a democracy saying we cannot trust the vote. And this is one of the, the worst things that can, when I, when I heard that, I was, I was, I'm not saying this like, I, I was shocked. I studied politics. I studied history. Um, I studied, uh, the third Reich and Hitler. And I am not often shocked when politicians say things. I was shocked in this moment um, because this is during a very partisan divide in in the US, uh, you know, in the Senate and in the House, in, in their parliamentary system. You have somebody saying that you cannot trust the outcome of the vote. And this is this puts democracy in peril. And it wasn't only Schiff saying this. I mean, this is... Before and after, you had lots of political pundits all over the U.S. saying things like this. So we had an article in the Washington Post. Uh, the headline was, The loser of November's election may not concede. Their voters won't either. And it says, what, what would happen if, if, um, if Trump uh, lost this election and then would say he refused to con concede because the vote was... The, the, the election was doctored. Um, they quote Schiff and the speech we just heard. Um, they say, "What what happened if the if the Democrats lost?" And they would, they just said, um, "We can't. We're not conceding." Um, 
So the, 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 to boil it down, the article basically, um, this is uh, may, maybe the main part from it, um, quoting, the combination of these four factors, Republican voter suppression, pockets of incompetence, dirty tricks, and increasingly outrageous language about stolen elections creates a volatile mix in the hyperpolarized era. Unfortunately, we don't have any good short-term fixes available between now and November. It is not clear that we can rely on responsible leaders of both parties to assure democratic transitions and acceptance of election results. And what I will prove during this podcast, or, well, prove, my, my, my theory, my argument is that, yes, there is something you can do, and there's still time. You know, uh, it's a very easy thing. Get away from e-voting in the U.S. and go to paper ballots. And I will show why that would solve the problem and restore faith in democracy. And that's a big elephant in the room that all these pundits are not talking about. They are talking about the election will be hacked. All of this, the New York Times, the Washington Post, Rolling Stone, all of them writing the election will be hacked. And they're not focusing on defending the election. They're just taking that as granted. And as somebody who is a journalist, um, I, of course, know where that is. Because let's be completely honest here. I mean, you could, you could call me cynical, but I know how this job works. Um, the press wants drama. If the 2020 election gets hacked by the Russians, that's the best thing that will happen to the U.S. press. That guarantees you... You know, sold newspapers, airtime on TV, clicks. The more drama, the better. And this is why they're not, I mean, it's a, it's a, it's a combination as always. It's, it's not malicious. It's like, it's a combination of incompetence. These journalists don't know what they're talking about. They don't know that actually, you know, switching to paper ballots would, would solve a lot of these problems. Um, they, a lot of them are just progressives. Because you know they're they're liberals. This is the lot of the press could just comes from that background, which you know, just the way it is. Um, they hate Trump with with a zeal, um, and you know this this just creates a situation. I mean, it's even worse. The Rolling Stones, uh, the Rolling Stone. I uh, don't want to impinge on the band here. The magazine Rolling Stone um, is even worse. I mean, they're spreading spreading fear, uncertainty, and doubt. I'm just going to read this one piece of their story. Four years ago, for an embarrassingly modest price, Russia pulled off one of the more audacious acts of election interference in modern history. The Internet Research Agency, the team of Kremlin-backed online propagandists, spent $15 million to $20 million and wreaked havoc on the psyche of the American voter, creating the impression that behind every Twitter avatar or Facebook profile was a Russian troll. Russian intelligence agents carried out the digital version of Watergate, infiltrating the Democratic Party and the Clinton campaign, stealing tens of thousands of emails and weaponizing them in the days and weeks before the election. Russian-backed hackers tested election websites in all 50 states for weak spots, like burglars chasing a would-be target. Now, this whole panic that the Rolling Stone is spreading here... If you analyze this, no, it wasn't a it wasn't like, even if all that is correct, and I'm, I'm not quite prepared to believe all of that is correct, but even if it was, it wasn't the Russian, you know, spies or whatever, the propagandists alone creating the impression that behind every Twitter avatar, Facebook profile was a Russian troll. No, that was you, the media, writing about this for months. Talking about this on TV without end, all the Russian trolls, all the, all the fake news. This is, you talked about this without end. Yes, the Russians probably hacked the DNC, although it's not as, you know, somebody who deals with, uh, with IT security. It's not as clear cut as the media would have you believe. If you actually look into that, attribution is very hard. Um, you know, there's this Gusefa guy and it's, you know, it's it's safe to assume it might have been the Russians, but to prove that is something completely different. You probably can't. 
Um, but even then, what we had here was a guy at the DNC, you know, Podesta, and and a and a probably very badly secured email server that you could hack, and emails that I mean, the Russians didn't create these emails. These emails were written by politicians, and the damage they created, they they caused, you know, they could only be abused this way because they existed. Right? So somebody must have written that. You can't just go, oh, it's the Russians' fault. No. Somebody in the DNC, people in Clinton's campaign wrote these emails and the damage was done because these emails that were supposed to be behind closed doors came out. Right? So there was an unsecured email server. It's not only the Russians. There's insec there were insecurities at place that were exploited is why this happens. And this is the same thing that's going to happen during the election. If the Russians hack the e-voting machines, the media will go, well, so the Russians hacked everything. Yeah, but the thing you're ignoring right now that you could fix right now is that there are known insecurities, that the system is a problem. You know, e-voting itself is the problem. It's a problem that you can fix from now until November because, yeah, it's expensive and we need resources. You have the resources for the tenth of whatever it costs to build a nuclear aircraft carrier, you can fix all of this. It's just, I just pulled that number out of my ass, but it's probably correct. It's probably less than 10%. Um, you can fix all of this, and you can fix it till November. Like, if you're like, okay, we're a democracy, the fact that our, um, our elections are not manipulated and private, that is important to us because we're a democracy and all of our, like, our state hinges on that. And we're going to fix this. You can fix it now. You can get rid of e-voting. But that's not what they, you know, nobody's saying that. Well, okay, we've got some scientists that are saying that. I'll get, I'll get to that in a little bit. Um, but they're not saying this. And you have precedences. We had, we just had the Iowa caucus. The Iowa caucus, not an election, is very different. I actually had to learn what a, I thought that was a primary, and I had to learn what the difference between a caucus and a primary were. But let's not get into that. Basically, you have people from a party, and they they vote on delegates, as far as I can understand it. And they sent these delegates later on. They sent them to the final convention, and then they vote who the candidate for the presidency is. But you basically you have people in a room trying to vote for a candidate, basically, even though it's not a vote and it's not on paper, whatever. But they had a system that worked, that worked for decades, probably centuries. And they decided in Iowa to change the system and deploy an app. And they, 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 deployed, they wrote an app, somebody wrote an app, they bought this app, they deployed this app, they didn't train the people, you had like 60, 70-year-old people who you just gave an app, to and the app was broken and the, the whole thing so i mean i put a link in show notes i'm not gonna quote anything of this but it's a great story on the register on this um absolute massive shambles the whole thing completely fell apart and you know based on stupidity and and incompetence and it's not like they didn't know because you have a story in the new york times um which ran a few days before, where they're basically saying, I, well, the headline is, Iowa will be the first test case for 2020 election security. Um, and they're basically saying that it's, it's gonna fail. Um, so let's quote, let's, let's quote you some from that. Weeks before the Iowa caucuses and the start of the 2020 presidential election season, one of the few senior Democratic campaign staff members whose full-time job was guarding against hackers and stopping a repeat of 2016 quit in frustration. The campaign, in this case Pete uh, Buttigieg's, simply did not care enough about security. Mick Baccio, its former chief of sec uh, information security, wrote in a five-page resignation letter this month, a proportion of which was obtained by the New York Times. Quote, the campaign continues to mimic the relaxed behavior and poor security posture that led to the Russian intelligence compromises in 2016, he wrote. So in this case, okay, this is a, it's a guy from Buttigieg, right? He's from that camp. But like, he was basically saying, we're not prepared. You know, this is gonna, this is gonna fuck up. And it fucked, it, it broke. 
it fell apart and nobody was even saying which even was a surprise to me even the media wasn't saying oh this must be the russians no um everybody said okay this is just the abs crap right so they proved that you don't even have to have russian hackers for this whole thing to go tits up okay and this wasn't a vote this was a caucus but you know it's the same thing. It's technology being injected in a process that has worked for decades. And you're injecting technology for some reason I don't understand. And then it all falls apart. And I'm just saying all of this bickering, breaking news, panic, all of that can just be avoided if we just, you know, if in the, in the US, if you just do what, for example, we do in Germany. Just use paper ballots. You know, why don't just use paper ballots and and solve the whole problem? Because electronic voting is a terrible idea. And the funny thing is, ever since I've I've been writing about this, ever since I've been doing even before, you know, I was a professional journalist. Um I can remember when I was doing Linux Outlaws back in the day. Um there's always these stories that's like, oh, why don't we switch to um, e-voting? Right? That was in, in Germany. It's like, why don't we switch to e-voting? Well, I can tell you why you don't switch to e-voting. Because it's a bad idea. And it's not like it's every few years these, these discussions come up. And people are like, oh, it must be fixed now, right? No, it's a, it's an, it's a flawed idea from the beginning. And we know it's flawed. And there's plenty of evidence. So last year, uh, late last year, I was in Prague at some InfoSec conference. And the guy who gave the first keynote was a uh, computer science professor and cryptologist called J. Alex Haldeman. Uh, he's from the University of Michigan. And, you know, he's among several um, people in the field uh, in IT security and, you know, computer science and engineering who um, deal with voting machines. So his his main focus is electronic voting machines. And um, he's been for years. Um, so there's a, there's this thing at DEF CON, which is a hacker conference in Las Vegas every year. Every year they have this uh, hacking village. Uh, it's like a vote, e-vote hacking village where they get like voting machines and they try to break them. And every year for the last, I don't know, five years, whatever, They've, they've hacked a number of them. So pretty much any electronic voting machine that's ever been introduced in the US has been hacked. Um, but you know, don't take it from me. I have a clip here from, um, J. Alex Haldeman on C-SPAN last year. Um, I think this was shortly after DEF CON when they just had a story where I think on a, on a, an e-voting machine, they managed to get Doom to run. Um, so here he is on C-SPAN explaining why electronic voting is crap and why you should just do paper voting. Um, so um, in Michigan, Michigan is a good example because uh, it already has a pretty strong posture when it comes to securing elections. And that's because in Michigan, like in, uh, in about half of states, every single vote is um, cast by voters on a piece of paper. Now, paper might seem retrograde, but it, it's actually a pretty good defense against election hacking because it's something that can't possibly be changed in a cyber attack. So what Michigan still needs to do, as many other states do, is make sure that they're using that paper as a form of cyber defense. And in order to do that, we have to check enough of the pieces of paper, the paper ballots, by having a person inspect them and make sure that they agree with the computer systems that give us our election night totals. As long as the paper records and the computer records agree about who won, we can have really high confidence that the election result wasn't somehow tampered with. In the 2018 election, how many Americans cast vote on machines that didn't have that paper backup? Well, un unfortunately, it was about 25% uh, of Americans in 2018. And there are still 14 states that, for um, at least some voters, don't have any kind of paper backup at all. Now, that's a problem because it means those states, for those voters, are relying entirely 
on the output of these complex computer voting machines that have been shown numerous times to have vulnerabilities. So there are 14 states in the U.S. where they do not have a paper trail at all. I mean, I don't understand the whole... He's basically saying, have a computer and then have a paper trail. I don't even understand why, ha why have a computer. I mean, okay, the U.S. is a lot bigger than Germany. Um, I know if you have a vote on, you know... So we are, we are uh, 80 million people and the U.S. is like 300 million. I know that, you know, you can't just say that one thing that works in one country works in the other. But, you know, in this case, the U.S., before there was electronic voting, they also did it by hand. So it worked. It takes a bit longer, but it works. You know, in Germany, we have, we have paper. You go into a booth. You make a cross. You seal it. You throw the envelope in the ballot box. They get all the ballot boxes in one place, open them up, and count them by hand. What is what is so wrong about that? I mean, that works. And yes, I mean you can speed that up. You can have electronic. I mean that that's a that's the thing I think is is legitimate. You know, you have you don't have people counting by hands because they also make mistakes. You have systems. You have like scanners, right? You put the the the, the paper ballots in there, and they count that. And then you put the paper ballots aside, and then you trust the count of the machines and then if somebody if something happens and somebody is unsure of the results um you just do a recount you do a recount by hand you do several recounts whatever it takes but you have the paper there and the paper is the thing that determines what somebody has voted for i don't understand all the other systems i don't think why you would do that because you have a um then you have a computer record and you have a paper record And in, in the moment, the, the problem is you, you have a crisis in democracy, as I said before, when people don't trust the vote. And in the moment where the paper record diverges from the computer record, so what record do you trust? Right? And if you then say, okay, we trust the paper record, why not just, just have a paper record in the first place? Um, yeah. And why would you have e-voting machines? Because they all have vulnerabilities. Um, They have different kinds of vulnerabilities. I mean, this is often said, okay, we have these machines and they're, um, they're, they're very they're dedicated computers. They're just used for the voting thing and for nothing else. And we don't, we don't ever connect them to the internet. Now, if you look at actually people who've, who've done studies on this and done research, they are connected to the internet. These, these machines need, um, security updates, so they will be connected to the internet, or they will be connected to the internet even by accident. Um, some are not connected to the internet, but you know you have they need security updates. So you you have another computer, you put a USB stick in, put security update on there, put the USB stick in the voting machine, and then update it. Right? What doesn't tell you that the download wasn't compromised? I mean, you had things like NotPetya, where basically. Uh, The, the attackers, whoever it was, they took over an update server for legitimate software and trojanized that software that way. You can do that with these systems. Um, you have these machines stored overnight someplace. Um, you know, people, people get, ac get access to that. Um, they're stored all like, presumably, you know, you need them for one election and they're stored for two years somewhere. People can get access to that. Um, these things are programmed. So you need, to, if you have an election, you need to program the, the ballot in there, right? What choices do I have? Who am I voting for? Um, you do that from a normal desktop computer. That desktop computer could be compromised. So if there's like a, a polling organizing place where they, where they program all the machines for the whole state, if you own that network, right, you can, you can, probably compromise all the voting machines. And it just goes on and on and on. Haldeman, actually, uh, in 2009, I, I know his name because um, I wrote about the story. I wrote an in-depth article about this later on. But um, So from his, he, he and his team was part of a team who did a hack on a voting machine, um, which um, they had like this, this e-voting machine and they wrote in a special operating system. And they said, okay, this operating system is only for this voting machine. And it doesn't have all the other stuff. It doesn't run Windows, whatever. And it doesn't have any other applications that you could trojanize or, you know, that have vulnerabilities. It is just 
tailor-made. It only has code for the voting machine, and it's very secure. And they used a programming technique which they didn't come up with, but I think this was, at least for me back then, was the best use of that. For me, that just hack just blew my mind. I learned from this hack what return-oriented programming is. Now, return-oriented programming, ROP, is um, basically you own a piece of software, let's say the operating system on the voting machine, and then... So in, in in normal software, you'd have like, you know, in a normal operating system, you have all these, this environment, you know, for writing, you, you could write, if you have Windows, you could write software, you have all these stuff that you can, that, that has vulnerabilities that you can use, and whatever you want to get done on this operating system, you know, you can, you can, you can use all this other software to get that done. It's much harder if you have a tailor-made operating system and if this is just written to, to do whatever you want, and that you know the the designer was like, there's there's no way they can even change. So once I program in the two candidates, right, for example, in a in a, in a simple simple vote, they can never change those because it's just like the operating system's not written that way. And return oriented programming, to explain it simply, is using pieces of program code to do things you want to do that the designer has never never thought of so so you know you have the two candidates and that you know the software is running and let's say the the the, the position on the ballot or the names of the candidates they're stored somewhere in memory and what you want to do to attack this is maybe turn them around so let's say you have uh you have an election and the two um people you can vote for are Donald Trump or uh, Pete Buttigieg, right? Let's assume for some. Let's take him. Um, and what you want to do as an attacker is you know you're like in a democratic area and you know they're all going to vote for Buttigieg. And what you want to do is when they press on on a touchscreen on Buttigieg, you actually want the vote to count for Trump. So you kind of need to change that around. So what you could do um, is... You know, when a vote is tallied, it's get it gets written into memory somewhere, and you could manipulate that in memory. So let's say Trump is one and Buttigieg is two, and the guy touches the touchscreen and it's supposed to write two into memory somewhere, and you want that to be a one, and you want to manipulate that. Um, then return-oriented programming is basically using other parts of the program to to achieve the goal you want to achieve. And this works by basically, if you break it down, um, all programming at a very low level is just like additions and, you know, take take this value, add it to that value, and then write it there, right? Take, take this value, m multiply it by this value, and write it there. And what you're just doing is you're jumping around in the instructions that the program normally would do you know, it says, okay, you wanna you you click on that, then we multiply that and write that into memory there. And what you and these instructions, right, when they're executed, are written into memory. And what you're doing is you're just jumping uh in between those and with all those little addition you know, add this, multiply that, write this into memory. Basically what you're doing is you're you're assembling your own little program, what you want to do out of these instructions. And these instructions are benign. You have a benign program. This program in itself doesn't have a security vulnerability. I mean, you have to have a security vulnerability somewhere to get into the system and to be able to execute execute code. Um, but the actual voting program, like once you're in the machine, the actual voting program can be completely secure and completely only the, the designer thinks it only does what it what you know what you want it to do. But because you can manipulate uh you know these you can jump from instruction to instruction you can use the benign parts of the benign program to do the evil thing you want to do i hope i i tried to explain this so that people who are not into programming understand this but basically you can take a program that is that looks benign that to anybody who would audit the source code looks benign and just because you got into a system, the system another way, you can use this return-oriented programming technique to 
do something malicious. And it's just, that is just one of the hacks they did. Um, if you want more, um, I put links in the show notes. There's a, there's a longer video from DEFCON 26, uh, which was in 2018, where, uh, Helderman is live on stage and hacks a Debold, uh, voting machine live on stage. Um, where basically the, the, she has like, you know, people coming up from the audience and they, they're, they're voting for one candidate and the machine shows them they've voted for that candidate. But when he prints out the, the vote tally in the end, the machine has changed it. You know, the machine has not, it has reported to the voter as doing what the voter won, wants, but in, you know, behind the scenes, it's just, it's done the absolute opposite. And, you know, you have all these, you have every year, you know, this, I, I put a, put a link in the show notes for the report, um, of the latest, uh, DEFCON voting village in 2019, um, where they, by the way, uh, show notes are at privatecitizen.press. Um, for every episode, I have a lot of notes there, um, where in the end, they basically come to the conclusion, um, that, pretty much all electronic voting machines are vulnerable. Um, it is beyond the current and foreseeable state of the art to construct computerized software and hardware-based voting devices that effect- effectively resist known practical forms of malicious tampering, they say. Um, however, this need not mean that elections must forever be vulnerable to compromise. Certain classes of voting equipment, including some but not all of the devices displayed at the voting village can still be used to conduct high-integrity elections in spite of their vulnerabilities by conducting statistically rigorous post-election audits. Whether this is possible depends on the specific category of voting technology in use and critically whether a properly designed post-election audit process is routinely performed as part of of every election. So this is basically what Haldeman says. Um, I think his focus is uh, because we, he doesn't, he thinks it's unrealistic to change all these machines, uh, before 2020. He says, let's use the machines that actually can give us a reliable paper trail and then just audit that. Um, now I think we can, we could just have paper ballots. Um, they further say systems that use paper ballots, such as optical scan voting devices, are physically designed to preserve a voter marked record each voter's intended choices, the original paper ballots themselves, which cannot be altered by even the most malicious compromised software. These paper ballots are a prerequisite for the use of routine post-election risk limit audits, RLAs, which are state-of-the-art statistically rigorous technique for comparing by human eye a sample of ballots with how they are recorded by the machine. And it, it, it goes on... Um, uh, it ends with, unfortunately, the recommended practice of auditable paper ballots coupled with routine post-election risk limiting audits remains the exception rather than the rule in U.S. elections. Um, and, you know, if you, if, if this is all, if you don't, um, don't believe me and this is, this is all too, uh, too much. Uh, I also had a nice video sent to me. Uh, it's a video by Tom Scott, which is, a YouTuber and a British, um, I think he's like a science TV IT guy. Um, that's a very nice video where he explains all of this very succinctly. This was sent to me by, uh, George's Walter. And, um, it's quite a cool video. You can, you can watch that as well. But my point is if it ain't broke, don't fix it. There is a very easy way to fix all of this. Just use paper ballots. Um, you know, you can, you can count them by hand, as we do in Germany, I think mostly. Or you can have like computerized equipment where, you know, it counts that. And then if any doubt comes up at all, and that's the important thing, right? You need to, what you want to do is, um, ensure fairness of the election. Also ensure that the voters believe that in the election integrity, because if they lose that belief, all bets are over. If in democracy, this is the, the the building block of our 
for daily lives of our democracy, what builds our society. If that breaks down, people lose faith in this core thing in the election. They lose faith in democracy. They lose faith in the state. And it's at that point, it's all over. And it's quite scary. I watched like this discussion the other day of like historians uh, where they're basically talking about, are we back in the 1920s? Like if you look at the political landscape, And, you know, there are arguments where, you know, one said, yeah, I feel like that. And another said, no, they're, they're not actually that many parallels. But it does feel a bit like that. You're like, this is, this is what happens, what happened, um, in the twenties and the thirties in Germany, um, where we did have a republic, a democratic republic. And basically, one of the big reasons why that failed um, is people lost faith in the, I mean, in this case, not in the elections, but in the democratic process, right? So there, there was the the big um, economic downturn, of course, um, you know, the, the great collapse and all that. But basically, below that, people lost faith. They lost faith in democracy. And if that happens, that's that's the worst thing that can happen and i don't i don't see why we just don't do paper votes what is so bad with that i mean the only thing you lose it it takes longer to count them and then the media will maybe have to wait a day and they won't have that big election night Woo! and i think i personally think this is why they're not concentrate i mean for one thing they don't know they don't understand that electric uh, electronic voting is always flawed and always a problem um But also, they don't want to lose this, the, you know, the, the big election night. Uh, we, we get the numbers very quickly and, oh, yeah, we can wall to wall coverage all night and all that. And if you don't have that, you have to vote, count by hand and it's like, yes, it might take like half a day. And, you know, you might only be sure who the next president is the next day. But I think, isn't that, you know, even a day later? But, you know, if something breaks, If, if if cyber cyber happens, that'll happen anyway. We saw that in Iowa, Iowa, and the same thing will happen with the presidential election. And I think, isn't it just, um, isn't that like a very small price to pay? This this timely, you know, knowing what the result is for just having secure elections and having trust in your elections and knowing that the Russians didn't hack your elections because they can't because they're actual marks of actual pens on actual paper that you can't alter and yes there are there's election fraud with i'm not saying paper ballots are like foolproof we know that there's been decades of uh, uh of, of of experience we know there's fraud um there are ways to cheat with paper ballots they're well-documented ways But the thing is, these don't scale. These attacks fundamentally don't scale. And they only, the only way where they succeed is on a, generally on a very local level. And yes, if you do it at a lot of local levels, you could probably influence the results if you do it in a, um, in a very targeted way. But we all understand all these risks and we know how to prevent them. You know, you have to guard the ballots when they are moved. Um, you have to make sure that there are observers from every political party at every point um, that are looking over the shoulder of the people counting the ballots. We know all of this, and we've been doing this for years. And generally, it works. And any of this, any of that fraud that could happen is, is way less of a danger than having an, ele an electronic system where just, you know, the hackers from Russia can come in and hack that thing. And I mean... People are calling it now. So I'm, I'm going to play you this. This is um, a um, an anal analyst who's on a lot of uh, US uh, TV shows, uh, you know, does a lot of intelligence um, topics. His name is Malcolm Nance, and he's talking about the cyber, 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 and what will happen with the 2020 uh, presidential election. Well, I think that uh, we are standing into a measure of danger that is going to be extremely, extremely critical for the American Republic. 
it's not only that Donald Trump is being given permission on the basis of what he's done in the past to go and cheat in this election. This vote next Wednesday, when he is acquitted, will give the entire world permission to attack the United States and perhaps be rewarded for it. So just imagine next November, second Tuesday of next November, it may not be Russia providing political propaganda beyond what they did in 2016. Imagine North Korea loosing their entire global hacking network on the Democratic Party and supporting Donald Trump's reelection. It could be bad. You know, what if we wake up the more of the, of the night election and we're told Trump won Vermont? How would we even deal with an actual interference in the vote? Right. I mean, again, a direct attack on the United States where a nation state has decided that they are going to actually hack the results and make it so obvious in such a way that one party, the Republicans, say, well, that's just too bad. That's the result of the election. Donald Trump wins. And the other party is left standing there blinking at a president who now believes he can do anything he wants in the natural national interest. So, of course, all of our opponents in the global threat arena, that's North Korea, as you said, Saudi Arabia has a very vested interest in keeping Donald Trump in as president of the United States. And they use Israeli, American and other uh, subcontractors to carry out nefarious hacking and intelligence activities. This nation is going to be under attack cyber wise, unlike anything that we've seen before, not just disinformation, but I think we may possibly finally see people put their hands on the thumbs of the scales of American voting machines or tally machines at the state level wherever they can. And it will be sloppy. It will be so obvious that, again, there's nothing we're going to be able to do about it because one side will accept the result. Cyber, 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 we're all going to die. Now, leaving aside all the vitriol and all the, the, the Trump hate and all of that and all the bull partisan bullshit, leaving that aside. Hello, this is Germany calling. Did you just ask how you can fix that? We, we have a fix. We've been using it for years. Paper and pens. I repeat, paper and pens. We know how to fix this. This idiot is going on the whole time. Well, we're going to be hacked. America's going to be under attack by all these people from everywhere, from North Korea, from the Russians. Trump thinks he can do whatever he wants. Just use fucking paper and pens and all this stuff is going away. God. And I, I, seriously, I don't understand. I don't understand these people. And... Just to end this topic, I think I've, 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 I've beaten the dead horse enough. Um, we need to understand, just to conclude this, we need to understand, it, you can't stress this enough, how important the integrity of elections is to a democracy. And it's not even the, um, like the practical, technical, integrity of the elections. It's the perceived integrity of the election. If voters, if a large part of voters loses faith in this crucial process, we're screwed. This form of government is done. It's, it's going to descend into absolute chaos and partisan bickering. And from that, there will, something else will rise another form of government which is going to be much worse which we don't want so fix it and you can fix it don't use electronic voting machines yeah um i hope you don't you don't mind this getting a bit more political um i've um I've I've had I've had some feedback recently uh, after the first show, and people have actually said um, they don't mind that and they want more of that. And I thought this was an was an important topic, and I think it's also, you know, um, it's topic. If you if you're interested in privacy, you, sh you should be concerned in that. By the way, a, a big part of this is um, like that. A big challenge in voting machines, in electronic voting machines, is 
then you need to be private. Um, the whole point of of these elections, they have to be, I think they call that the um, Australian um, election method because it was pioneered in Australia. Um, nobody should know who you, who you would vote for. This is why, for example, in Germany, it's illegal to post uh, pictures of yourself with your ballot like from the from the ballot box people because you know you, they can exert pressure on you um, it's, it's to prevent people exerting pressure on you you, you should vote for this party or we're going to beat you up um, that, that, that kind of thing um, yeah so that's a, that's a big challenge in, in, in electronic voting and of course it's like if you do if you do uh, post uh, postal ballots right um, that's a problem that gets subverted uh, in a certain way, um, because kind of the state can kind of know who, vo- who voted for somebody. Uh, there, there are ways to get around that. I'm, I'm a fan. I've been voting uh, by post for ages, for decades, because I just don't want to go out on the Sunday. You know, I just I don't don't want to take the chance that you know it's going to be a bloody storm or whatever. You know, I just want to um, I just want to get that done and. Oh, uh, one one point uh, I wanted to talk about uh, beforehand as well. Uh, I forgot to talk about was um, that, of course, you know, when we talk about how like the the press wants these kind of um, things, you know, the the electronic voting, so they can get the results very fast on the evening of the election. You can still do that. We do that in Germany. It's called exit polling. If you do exit polling correctly, you know, you ask people coming out of the booth who they voted for, you know, privacy, obviously you don't have to answer them. But, you know, if you do that in a statistically sound way, you will get a very good understanding of, you know, these, these, if, if done in a correct way. Um, okay, there are always elections where they're peculiar or close where it doesn't work that well, but generally, um, you should you should have a pretty good picture. Anyway, um, I I was talking about feedback. Let's talk about feedback. Um, I had some very nice feedback after the first episode um, of this show. Um, Kai wrote me a very nice message from Switzerland. I'm saying we really enjoyed the episode. Uh, he said he appreciated the background of Clearview AI, as in his words, uh, most other IT outlets only report the most lurid parts of the story uh, so you kind of like the uh, the more in-depth look I think which is what I'm aiming for um, and he's also of the opinion he says that data privacy is very important and it's good that I'm doing this show um, Fadi who's been a long time listener to my podcast uh, podcast says uh, you mentioned that your position will be from a more realistic perspective I think that this is important so I have to say my personal position is that we are in a somewhat losing battle. Technology um, is advancing and there are some aspects that cannot be avoided anymore. But on the other hand, it's important to be aware of the possibilities and dangers and somehow find an acceptable compromise to go through life. I think what he's referring there uh, to there is what I was referring to is, yes, uh, as technology people, we know um, that this stuff is bad, but we tend to go like, oh, well, we've lost the you know, privacy is dead. We've lost that battle and we'll just give up. And that's just, of course, the wrong reaction because in the moment where you do that, yes, privacy is actually dead. But there's, and I've been guilty of that in the past. So I feel like um, there's an argument to be had where we understand that we have a problem and that is probably getting worse. But to discuss what we can still do, I think that's, you know, that's what I want to do with the show. Um, he also says, um, he let me also mention that coming from a different country where digital privacy is not a valid expectation, it's interesting to see what new tools would be created to provide people with acceptable assurances. This is especially important when looking at this topic from what is legal compared to what is possible. For me, the Snowden revelations highlighted that what is more, what is of more importance is what is possible because for some actors, legality is not a major concern. And I have to completely agree Fadi there. I think that as well. This is my, my problem. And I'm going to talk about that, you know, during further episodes of this show, um, with a lot of the, um, legislation we have in Germany and in Europe 
that is a lot a lot of stuff's concerned with what is legal which basically um only companies are concerned with and when when it comes to um to privacy, we also have to contend with intelligence services and they don't give a damn. And we still need to be aware of that because laws kind of don't help us because I mean, um, so I don't, you know, I, I might have some new listeners to the show and I can't kind of, um, judge the audience and where you're coming from yet. But you know, me having studied politics, I basically, um, know intrinsically from all that I've read. So, that the point of like an intelligence service is to be outside the law. That's the whole point. Um, intelligence services do things sometimes, you know, for valid reasons. There are good arguments that they have to exist. Um, but without getting into that argument, they do things outside the law with kind of the, the, the tacit, um, acknowledgement of the state where the state says, yes, we have these laws and then they're, um, they govern the life of all of all our citizens, but there have to be exceptions. There have to be state organs who do not um, abide by these laws in the interest of the whole of society. That's basically, I think, the general general understanding there. Um, and then Fadi goes on. Finally, you mentioned at the start of the podcast that you had a friend, uh, that, or that you had friends from all over the world. Um, I hope you consider me a friend too. It's somehow asymmetrical as I've listened to you since the Linux Outlaws, although I haven't been active. I think he means uh, in, in like sending emails and stuff. Um, yes, uh, you know, of course. Um, I have many of the friends I have from people who, who, who've listened to my podcast over the years and who've talked to me and then, you know, I get to meet them and it, I would, I would love to consider you a friend. Um, Definitely. Also, I had an email from Butterbeans. Butterbeans says, uh, you seem to be very aligned with things I'm interested slash concerned with. And hearing about this show was wild because I've become much more interested in this topic as of late and clearly you are too. I hope the show gains traction and you're able to grow your audience to a level that sustains you. I salute your bravery in taking a leap of faith to leave a corporate environment and strike out on your own. Thank you for that. Um, yes, I, this show does not need to reach a level where it alone sustains me. I still um, make money by writing articles as long as that continues to happen. Um, I'm good. It's definitely cool if I can make a little bit of money on the side, which, you know, I can basically, I plan my day that way. You know, as a freelancer, you're like, okay, um, I need a certain amount of hours in the day where I'm earning money. And if the podcast is part of that, that's kind of cool. Um, um, yeah, so, um, butter beans, um, yeah, I, I think we, I think that's just a, maybe it's, I don't know. I don't know if I'm just in tune with you. I think that's just the thing that thinking about this topic, um, I think a lot more people have been thinking about it longer than me. I, I think I'm not like, um, the first to to jump on this, but I, I think more and more people are definitely um, getting into this and and starting to um, to want to know more about privacy and think about this topic because it's just like it just permeates all of our lives now and and more and more of it and of course there's stuff written about it um, there's more and more mentions of this kind of things in in mainstream um, media which is good. And so lots of more people think about this. So I think, yeah, if I can do my small part in that, I think that's great. Um, Shelby also wrote me, uh, to say, uh, they, they, they think I'm covering the right topic. Uh, they've been listening since Linux Outlaws days and missed my rants to get them through the workday. Well, today <laughs> I should have, I think I, uh, have qualified. I've, I've satisfied that. I've satisfied that requirement. That should have been enough rants for you. Anyway, um, that's it for me, for the feedback for the show. If you, if you have a comment or two, if you want to get in contact, or if you just want to tell me a story, link in the show notes, how to contact me, um, privatecitizen.press. 
And with that, I uh, would like to thank all the people involved. At first, I want to thank the No Agenda Show because uh, uh, noagendashow.com. That I never, I never know. I always have to look that up. Yeah, that works. Noagendashow.com. Um, John C. Dvorak, Adam Curry. Um, because that clip from Malcolm Nance that I played, um, I got of them. And what I love about No Agendas, and one of the things I love about them, aside from coming up with the value for value model, um, is they, um, they pro- they're a bit like me. They provide all the, I, I try to provide all my sources for you so you can dig into it. So there's always lots of quotes and, and, and links and stuff in the show notes. And they have the same thing. So they post all the clips they play. Uh, they have them available, so I could just pull that, um, which they played on their show, um, and I could play that to you, which I think is great, so I want to say thanks to that. Um, and then also, um, I am, as I said, you know, I'm a freelance journalist. I do this on the site, so I set up a Patreon. Um, so if you want to help financially in me producing this show, you can certainly do so, and I'd be very happy um, under the aforementioned value for value model, which basically means give me what you think this is worth. You know, how much do you pay for a coffee uh, when you go out, uh, when you're out in town and you're listening to this and you're paying for a coffee? You know, is that maybe that price a month? You know, is the show worth worth as much as a coffee? Uh, would Would you give me a dollar a month? If you if you think so, you know, go to uh, privatecitizen.press and click on that link, and you can do so, and I'd be very happy. And if you don't, that is okay with me as well. This is, I want to stress, I only want you to do this if you really want you to do this. I don't want to make you feel like you want to do it. Um, Let's go on with, with the thanks, um, aside from the No Agenda guys for that clip. I would like to thank, uh, Raul, Raul Gabizali, Gabizali. One point I'll get this name right. Um, who's recorded the theme music. I think written and recorded that theme music I use for the show, which is great. And then also I'd like to thank Bitemark, uh, bitemark.co.uk. Great hosting company. Um, they have great um, virtual virtualized servers and stuff like that. And they provide a server for me to host all the audio files, which helps me greatly in getting the show to you. Speaking of people who help me in getting the show to you, um, here's all the people that so far um, have given me money and supported this podcast financially via Patreon. Um, so I would like to thank Niall Donegan, Michael Mullen Jensen, Jonathan M. Hathy, Georges Walther, Dave, Kai Sears, Matt Jalliman, Fadi Mansour, Joe Poser, Butterbeans, Shelby Kruver, and Dave Amrish. I think Dave edits his last name, so I could tell him apart from the other Dave, which is which is great. And, um, yeah, pretty much that's it for the show today. Um, I hope you liked it. I hope you, uh, uh, indulged me in my little, um, diversion there, uh, away from pure privacy topics to something that I think is also very important. Um, so if you're in the US, maybe you can lobby for them to just do paper voting if you're in another country next time you vote which for me will be I think in two weeks or something I, I got I sent my paper ballot thing off I'll, I'll do it by letter but you know feel happy when you get you know don't see it as a chore it's a democracy it's very important it's an important thing we do it's an important act for us as citizens even as private citizens you know see it as that as empowering our democracy that's it for me Um, I'll see you again next Wednesday for another show, another episode of The Private Citizen. I'm Fab. I'm saying goodbye from Hamburg. It's still stormy, but, you know, a storm isn't that bad yet. So um, I hope I'll I'll be still be there next week for the next show. Stay free, stay private, and remember, don't let the law catch you. 
See ya, fellas.